You hear it all the time. There's creating demand and there's capturing demand. And we know what capturing demand looks like, but what about creating it? What does that look like and who's done it really well? In this month's Office Hours, we're gonna hear from Rand Fishkin, and he's gonna talk about how he generates and creates demand at SparkToro. There's not gonna be any long drawn out intros, no sales pitches, no boring slides. Instead, Rand's gonna actually talk about the troubling concepts of only relying on SEO and capturing demand and four ways for you to actually grow demand through SEO. It's counterintuitive, but he talks about going outside of the search results and why you shouldn't shy away from controversy. So join us this month for Office Hours. It's gonna be a great one. Hey everyone, welcome to The Long Game. In this episode, we talk about what we're doing to prepare for a recession. And by the time this is published, we might already be in a recession. So why are we talking about this? Well, one, it's important to share what we're doing with other business owners, other marketing leaders, people who wanna hear from us, and potentially trying to figure out what to do in their own businesses and companies. So in this episode, we talk about how we're feeling about the market and this looming recession, all the headlines that we're seeing, what we're doing for ourselves personally, what we're doing for the team, and how we're thinking about the business and how companies should be thinking about their marketing portfolio during a time of recession. Hope it's helpful. Coming up on the end of Q2, and there's been talk about recession probably like, I don't know, the last couple of years, even during COVID, people were talking about it. Like, there's no way all this money being pumped into the system is going to be good for us. And now we're seeing crazy high inflation rates. We're seeing a lot of layoffs and there's even more talk about a looming recession. So regardless of how it's like actually defined, um, I think there's a lot of doom and gloom in the market right now. So maybe starting point. I know we've sort of texted and messaged each other about what, what we're feeling and thinking about. So how are we feeling? Maybe Ali, if you want to start on that, because we talked about this pretty recently. Did you say Ali or Alex? <laughs> I said Ali. Me? Yeah. Um, this has been quite the challenge of not burying my head in the sand to be honest you all i know there's been a lot of other stuff going on for women and just general humankind so at some point um i have to challenge myself not to go too deep off the uh, deep end of the research and the reading and just absorbing everything um overall it's been a little bit easier for the way my brain works to just keep myself like heads down focus on what I can control when it comes to the business, like definitely taking care of relationships, um, making sure that, you know, my team feels like safe and they feel motivated and they feel uh, fulfilled in their roles. And then in terms of my relationships with you all, obviously keeping those front and center. Um, obviously there's lots of changes coming up in my personal and professional life. Um, but in terms of what I can control also, it's just looking at like, my spending and like my personal relationship and like how all that stuff is faring. So all in all, how I feel the answer to that question changes probably daily today. I feel okay, but it's also been a good day. So uh, I feel a little bit more susceptible to fluctuations because I think emotions are high and stuff like that. Um, not a very scientific answer I've given you all, but 
just the truth. Mm -hmm. Well, the life of an entrepreneur is more up and down. I've noticed since going full-time, it's not quite on the bipolar spectrum, but I do feel like, David, we've talked about this. One day we'll get uh, a couple extra leads or some big piece of news, or it doesn't even have to be a big piece of news. And I feel on top of the world. I'm like, all right, we're, we're scaling, we're growing fast. Like we're going all in. And then if I have three or four days of like relative silence, uh, leads aren't coming in and it's like not even an issue really in the, in the grand scheme of things, then I'll start catastrophizing and thinking, oh, this is going to go to zero. I'm, I'm going to have to like go back and and live at home and, you know, with my parents or something like that. Um, so I think that's natural even outside of the recession. And that's why I'm grateful that we have, like, I'm not a solo founder. I'm grateful that I have you two to bounce things off of and like sort of, um, I don't know, I guess, carry the burden, the emotional burden of entrepreneurship. And I have a network where I, we can kind of chat about these things. But in, in terms of the actual scope of um, an ec- economic downturn, I think that um, there's there's sort of two factors here. One is that I, for better or for worse, tend to be more on the paranoid side of things. Um, so I, I tend to keep in the back of my mind that this could all go away. And I, I mentally kind of accept that. And then I, I work in spite of that. Or, or maybe because of that, but also in spite of that. And then two, I think um, maybe I'm not as as nervous about a recession. I, I think we're well poised. Maybe we'll talk about this, but a lot of the research that I've read suggests that how, and this is annoying, but it's how you basically come into a recession that uh, gives you either the opportunity to invest further and keep scaling uh, past your competitors, or basically you go into survival mode and just try to like ride it out. So you don't basically tank the company. And I think we've done things pretty well. Uh, we have systems and processes. We have a good, basically uh, tight look at our budget and like our, our, you know, P and L and margins and all that stuff. And I think the answer for me, regardless uh, of any economic condition is basically to do things in my control, like Ali said. So regardless, I'm just going to work harder and maybe it just gives me a little bit more fuel, a little more fire to like, you know, hustle every day, which is what I should be doing anyway. Yeah. I'm the same way. Like just yesterday, I don't think we had any leads come in and I had no responses from all the messages and emails I sent out for sales. And I kind of felt shitty. And I was like, what do I, am I supposed to do something else? Do I, I don't know, go figure out how to help clients. And then I was messaging you earlier today, Alex. And I was like, actually, no, I just need to keep doing sales. <laughs> like it's just one day. And so it's always an exercise in regrounding myself in that and sticking to the basics. And then I also tend to focus a lot on the, like what could go wrong type of thing. Just naturally I was raised that way. And I think it's funny how the three of us are each working through that and trying to see like what could go right now as well, but that paranoia also sort sort of helps us in this period. Um, so we can stay paranoid, but also be optimistic that we're going to get through it. The part that I'm particularly excited about is what you said, Alex, is it's how you go into a recession that determines how well you get out of it. Like a lot of these tech companies we're seeing have to go through layoffs because they were probably bloated and over-indexed on hiring and growth without looking at how healthy they're their books were looking and we've been pretty meticulous about our books and making sure we're profitable and have cash in the bank to take care of our team. So we don't have to do that. And in fact, we're going to be hiring like three people in the next couple of months. So I think we're going into it pretty well, which is a good reminder that we're in a good situation. 
There's two metaphors on that, by the way, that preceding a recession, it's like in, in running, I don't know if this is actually true, but you're, you know, if you're running up a hill, you, you run harder. And if you're running down a hill, you try to like slow your pace. Like you don't want to like take the momentum and start spinning out of control running downhill. And it's also the uh, Warren Buffett, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. It's just like, you have to be in a position poised to be able to do that. You obviously can't be greedy if you have no money left and you've got to cut like a shitload of your employees and spend, then you're in this predicament where you just have to survive and get through it, which is why you're seeing a lot of these companies in the series C, D, E phase, just cut a shitload of their workforce because they were overbloated to start. Like they were just running on fumes, many of them, hoping that they would ride these sky high valuations to an IPO or exit during that time. And some did, but. Yeah. David, something you said too, about like how paranoia by nature has done us favors and probably will throughout the course of our career and our lives. But it's been a challenge lately for me to separate like how paranoia affects like my actions and my mindset sometimes it just encompasses everything. Um, but I think we're finding a pretty healthy balance of letting our paranoia help us become like physically, financially, mentally prepared, even like taking the necessary actions, pulling back where necessary, you know, digging in our heels, slowing down, like running downhill, like Alex said, but mindset wise, like that can be a separate approach. Like we can keep our heads, like keep our heads up, be hopeful, have faith, all that stuff, not in a, um, naive way. But I think it, that's kind of the key is separating those two and not letting like your preparedness drag your your mindset down too. The thing is, I don't think we've ever not done that. Like in the earliest days when we didn't even have employees and it was just me and David, like we would we would really be not sparse, but we would be very like judicious around what things we invested in and even like the tasks that we would employ and like what kind of strategies we would work on to get clients. Like even, I mean, we, we still have these discussions around like, hey, is this actually the optimal marketing channel or should we cut it off entirely? So I think we've gotten into a very good framework of like healthy intellectual debate and honesty around all the things we're doing. So we don't, I don't think we've ever had a lot of sunk costs or mm-hmm. problems with that. Yeah. Like we barely put money into paid marketing, which to me, I'm, I'm quite impressed by that we've grown to a million in uh, book revenue without ads, uh, which probably says a lot. Maybe it's paranoia that I'm not good at ads that I haven't done it or haven't pushed for us to do it, but maybe it's just paranoia of not wanting to waste money either. Mm-hmm. What, what have we done like to help the team feel good about this? Ali, you mentioned like making sure like your side of the work feels good. Yeah. Staying in touch with everybody, um, spending time longer on one-on-ones if needed, or if I sense like the conversation's not over yet. Mostly, I mean, primarily maintaining friendships and relationships or like at least a friendship element to our relationship has always been nice because a lot of us work remotely, like very siloed and that alone is taxing much less like having all this news come at us. Um, I think something you've done well, David, and what you've encouraged across the organization is just a ton of transparency. I personally have never worked at a company like that. I know we've all had big companies in our past, so maybe it's not uh, by nature, but I just love how much we share with the rest of the team and how much we empower them. Like this is because of you, like you've become better at this, like really tying numbers and growth and revenue back to um, what our team has done. And I think that that alone makes people feel like incredibly valuable, incredibly talented, um, and not just like, I don't know, someone who might be let go, which isn't in our plans and won't happen, but it's always good to remind people like why they're with us and how they're helping us reach new levels. And I think that you're really good at that. 
Yeah, the honesty has been the big factor for me. Uh, trans- transparency, like we've shared our metrics throughout the entire time with the entire team and been totally open about our performance and goals and growth expectations. Um, also around the potential, wh- whatever this economic situation, it's you know stagflation, inflation, recession, whatever we're saying, uncertainty. Um, there, we haven't gone through one. We're we're all young enough that we haven't actually yeah. gone through one. So I've been pretty transparent that I don't know what is going to happen. Nobody really does, but I'm also like trying to put probabilities on different outcomes and saying like, all right, there's like a small chance that this happens, a large chance that maybe like recession is going to be less severe towards us than we we probably think a tiny chance that it's catastrophic you know and basically trying to put different models towards like outcomes and then also being transparent that we do need everybody on board like we we need some cohesion to work through this because it's not going to be like just cash flowing from the ceilings and like we're we're going to need to like push this rock up the hill to get through this so like making sure that everybody is like really engaged and really on point and like doing the work that's going to be most impactful and like setting the tone in, in terms of like the expectations for standards and whatnot there. But um, yeah, that, I, I think that all falls under the basket of openness and transparency and honesty. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I don't know how we ended up doing that. Maybe it's just at least for me coming from HubSpot where the executives shared all their exec meeting deck slides. And I was like, wow, they're sharing this with even lowly employees like me at the time when I first started, like I devoured that stuff and it was helpful to see how the business was doing. So maybe it just felt like for our team, even though it's small, we should just let the team know about all our, all our metrics, revenue, sales, revenue forecast, um, and show what impact they're having on a business. I think the part that I'm, I'm proud of myself for is for seeing this coming and like getting a memo out and being like, Hey, this is going to happen. Here's here's what I think is going to happen. Here's why. Here are all the signals. Here's what smart people are saying. Don't need to worry about this. We're going to be good. I think getting ahead of it before the news cycle even started catching on was probably yeah, uh, you were early prudent. Um, yeah, it, it's what's that saying? Like the people Panic who early are like dooms doomsday night like. People who are always crying doom are eventually going to be right. It's just when they're going to be right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, oh, this person predicted 10 of the last two recessions. Yeah. So you yeah. can't take everything they say like super <laughs> seriously, but planning is better than like not planning for those things. And you were yeah. planning early. I think also it's finding the right voices to listen to. Cause I know you listen to the all in podcast. I do as well. And I think they've been relatively early calling all of these things based on like all the, you know, spending the government was doing and like the different economic conditions and workforce things. So listening to them and it harkens back to like the start of the pandemic when I was listening to voices like Balaji and Nassim Taleb, like two months before everybody was talking about it in the States. And they're like, button up because this is going to be something. And, you know, I was like one of the first of my friends who was telling people that this was going to be serious, but it's like finding those voices who can kind of be the canary in the coal mine of sorts. Yeah, I think the theme I'm sort of getting from this conversation is just instead of reading all the headlines that like more are going to come because we haven't officially entered a recession yet. So it's going to be a lot more speculation and all of that. But all the headlines, like those outlets are incentivized to write those headlines that instill fear and anxiety and stress because they get clicks and all of that. But I've kind of just stopped reading the news and just focus on what I can control, which is, hey, 
our, our clients are going to be hit by this. How do we make sure we're strong partners with our clients? Our team's going to be worried, but like, no matter what we say, like we can reassure them, but they're going to be worried. How do we make sure that they feel valued and like their jobs aren't going anywhere? Um, I think honestly, I'm going to be a bit stressed out sometimes. And I think I, I'll message you both and be like, I'm a bit stressed out or like, I need to rant about something and just having those channels to communicate and get through it all. But otherwise it's sort of like, what if the way I think about it is if, because you're in a recession, you have to completely change the way you're running your business, you're probably running your business the wrong way. And so the fact that we don't need to change too much is probably a good thing. Yeah, there's maybe I can rope in some of this research because I'm I'm actually writing yeah. an article right now for a convert on how to change your or how to shift the focus of experimentation during Perfect. a recession, which is relevant. Um, it's it's kind of like the same principles, but like I looked at all the the research from past recessions, um, and actually there was a lot of content written when the pandemic started because people thought that it was going to be or nobody knew if it was going to be like a V shaped recovery, if you remember that language, like L shaped or wh- whatever the terms were. So there was a lot of content on this, but. Um, First off, like we'd said, um, this Bain study had uh, a quote that was like, greater discipline during boom times offered more flexibility during lean years. Getting it right during the lean years has a massive impact on a company's growth rate after things improve. So obviously, you know, if you're balanced out before you have to go lean, so to speak, that's great. And then what you do once there's lean times, that that matters a lot too. The other study was uh, Harvard Business Review. And a lot of people, their first inclination is to cut everything and basically go as as sparse on spending as possible. You know, cutting employees, doing layoffs, cutting budget, especially paid ads, especially brand, those get cut very quickly. Um, and they said that firms that cut costs faster and deeper than rivals don't necessarily flourish. They have the lowest probability, 21% of pulling ahead of the competition when times get better. So it's one of those things that like you want to be poised for the opportunity and take advantage of it when it comes. And if you're not... <laughs> And it's like about getting to default alive or default investable, uh, as um, David Sachs says. Yeah, the interesting part, I think, on the last All In podcast, there's they did some like quick poll at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and the, the person had asked everyone in the room who were also founders, like, how many of you are thinking about like the recession and blah blah, blah and everyone raises their hand, and then. The follow-up was how many of you are planning on cutting costs and no one raised your hand. And it was because they're assuming everyone else is going to cut costs. So they're trying to do the opposite, which is like be greedy when others are fearful. Mm. But isn't that kind of ironic where like based on the bell curve, like there's got to be an average, not all of you are going to make it. And not all of you are going to be that data point that succeeds when you decide to remain aggressive or, and it makes me continue to stay paranoid because we're continuing to invest. We haven't really cut much to be honest. And so there's a part of me who wonders that, that wonders if we should continue investing or if we slow down on that hire, but it's also like, no, we need to hire if we want to scale. So I, there's still that internal conflict, but just got to make a decision and commit. Well, it's not like, I think you want to cut or in most cases you want to cut, but that cutting isn't just to cut expenditures. It's to reallocate it to the places that matter more maybe during those times. So I think I didn't read the rest of the study, but I think that was the hypothesis was that the companies who best reallocated were the ones who won, not necessarily those who just dropped everything. 
And also like on the other side, like if you just splurge on everything and you continue pouring money in, like that could obviously work out poorly as well, because you don't know how long a recession is going to last. You don't know like what consumer behavior changes are going to happen. Like that's something you have to, you know, maintain adaptability on. But if you just flush the market with cash at that point, like that could also be high risk as it could any other time, you know? You don't know when your next next uh, fundraising round can come in and on, on what terms. And like, there's so many things up in the air. So I think it's more about judicious spending. Which you said we've always been pretty good at. So Totally. What are, I mean, we've talked vaguely about what we're doing um, during this time, but I guess like, how are we maybe rethinking our internal operations? And then maybe we can just start with that. Cause then I, I also think it'd be interesting to talk about how content marketing might change or how content marketers should maybe shift their thinking. But like, what are we doing uh, differently? I think for internal operations, at least for me, it's getting a lot more ruthless of like, if I have a bunch of admin work, I'm going to figure out how to automate as much of that as possible or just not do those, like whatever is not important. Um, I think for the team, I can't speak for the rest of the team, but I'm starting to pay a lot more attention. Like, hey, is that like, do we need to do that? Or can we automate that mm-hmm. and encouraging a team and think more in that way versus like if there's ever, ever any sort of annoyance of, oh, I got to do this thing. My immediate question is, let's figure out how to automate it. Or like, mm-hmm. do you even need to do that? So I'd rather we spend a larger percentage of our time on revenue earning and revenue retaining activities than busy work. Mm-hmm. Busy work and ex- experimental stuff that's like just a loose hypothesis. I think now is maybe not the time for us to invest in like things that are less proven. Like we were talking about paid ads and we have, there is surely a way to make that work for us. And we just maybe don't have the internal experience to do that. So it's like, how much money do we want to spend and and potentially waste learning to get to that point where it's viable versus like, we know we have a couple channels and like, why don't we just continue double downing on those or doubling down on those as we could just like squeeze more results. And we know that it's going to be a feasible thing. Yeah. Something that it's been, fun to talk about is like how to get the most, like you said, how to get the most out of all of our efforts. So spending time on a podcast and being able to repurpose it for other things, um, you know, using it for blog content instead of investing in additional blog content that kind of satisfies this podcast, spending time on here and the content that comes from this satisfies our goals in that respect, instead of kind of layering on other efforts, that would be great to have, um, let's say if we're not in a recession, but right now that might be something that's hundred percent not necessary. So I know I've had to hone my skill of like what's necessary and what's not kind of that same thing you say, Alex, on what moves the boat forward. Um, so really being able to double down on the things that we're already doing, making sure that we get the most out of everything and get the most out of every person we work with too. So it's been fun to check in with some of my team to be like, what else are you interested in? Like, what else would you like to do across the organization? Like, what have you witnessed? What have you um, gotten to see in other meetings that you might be curious about learning or, or honing those skills. Um, so really helping them not only feel more value in their role, but also learning what other talents they have that might benefit gr- the growth of the company too. That's a really good point. Doubling down on, on investment into employee skill development right now. Yeah. That seems like, I mean, I don't know if I've heard that talked about a lot in terms of like what to do in a recession, but it seems like maximizing somebody's current capabilities versus the risk of hiring maybe new people to to satisfy those things. Like how much 
you know, could we put somebody through training to to learn a new technical SEO skill set versus trying to get some contractor in to satisfy that? That's a really interesting point. Yeah, and not doing so in a way of squeezing out every working hour, but more helping them become more more valuable in their own right as well. Because they're not going to go out and invest in thousand dollar courses right now, you know. And so we have a lot that we can teach and we can learn from them and. They're, you know, obviously curious about other parts of the business where, like we said, very transparent, very open, try to avoid silos. So it's, it's a natural next step for us, especially right now. I go back to the, the same frameworks that we've, I've talked about probably many times before, but the, will it move the boat faster is something I think about a lot um, in our business, but also personally, I know that when, as soon as I went full-time, Many times in my life, I've tried to do calendar audits and energy audits and sit on Sundays and figure out what my most important activities are. And that's been marginally helpful through you know just my life. Things build up. You get kind of like calendar debt and whatnot. But when I, when I dropped everything and started working on this full time, I didn't even need to audit it. Like Everything just, just honed in. My, my vision narrowed and I knew exactly what I needed to be doing at, at all times. Like I could feel it when I was like, this isn't this isn't the highest impact thing. Like, and, and David and I talked about that with different meetings that were like very low probability of being uh, anywhere near interesting. We're, we just dropped them. So I think that was one thing that uh, became apparent more, more so when I went full time. Uh, but that's something I continue to think about. And then like one of my favorite business books recently is Amp It Up. I, I love that book. And I know it's, it's kind of controversial, but only because he wrote that essay on LinkedIn in 2020 or 2021 when it was the height of just like, forgive me that this maybe is controversial, but entitlement in the tech space, like including myself, like we, we were all making tons of money and like the RSUs were insane. There was no shortage of demand for your skills. You could just hop to another company, double your fucking salary. And it just, it, it became so bloated and so soft. And, um, what's the guy's name who wrote amp it up? Frank Slootman. Frank Slootman. He comes out and writes this essay that's like, um, increase the urgency and velocity, like go way faster than you think you're going to, to the point where you're uncomfortable, um, narrow the focus, which I don't think that was controversial, but like do fewer things better and like raise the standards. Like it's either totally amazing or total shit. Like, and <laughs> those things, like, I remember there was so many comments just blasting him for this, but I bet those founders and the people blasting it back then now and in the next two years are going to be like, oh shit. Oh, those are pretty good operating principles. I always think about those too. And those are important in the off season, but they're also important, you know, in war times. Yeah. I think a, a heuristic that I got from the My First Million podcast around hiring was sort of like, you want to hire someone that's going to fall into three buckets. They're either going to be a rock star at the company and like really grow and like you can coach them and get them to the like amazing levels. Um, they're going to grow and they're going to outgrow the company and decide to leave and go do their own thing, which is fine too. Or they're okay and you just fire them. So far, I don't think we've had any of the third bucket. And I think we have more in like the first bucket. Um, second bucket, not, I don't think we can make a Wait, judgment sorry, call what on were that the yet. Three buckets? It was uh, rock stars There's and rock then... star, um, someone who outgrows the company. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. I thought those were the thing. same. Kind of or like, there's no room for like, oh, they're good. They're fine, but we can coach them up. It's like, no, they're either like already great and we continue leveling them up um, or we don't, we don't stick with it and we just have the hard hard conversation yeah the okay ones that seems more like a role for like maybe a mercenary or contractor if you really just need to get something done um but for the people who are on the boat like or or 
what's the metaphor that I think Frank Sluton talked about, like drivers versus passengers. Like you, you don't yeah. want passengers. Like they tend to weigh down the ship, and uh, you want people who are driving it forward. Yeah. But a lot of that is like the tone that we strike, right? In terms of focus, like I think that's one of the big things in setting the tempo for how fast we expect to get things done. Standards, I think we've already set very high standards for the work quality that we put out for clients, especially, but then our own internal stuff as well. But I, I would say, like in the past few months, we've tried to shift the focus to much more narrow. Like, hey, what are the few things that we can really knock out of the park and just forget about the rest? We we stopped investing in YouTube. I, you know, stopped working with the LinkedIn agency. And we're pouring it all into events, blog, like bottom funnel blog posts, and basically the podcast. Um, and the tempo, I would say, we've also tried to push that forward. You know, like instead of hey, what you know, come up with this full plan in, in a month and like, you know, get every detail right. It's like, what can we have done by today or tomorrow? Or like, it doesn't have to be the whole thing, but how can we get some momentum here? Yeah. I, I think we could be doing that more. Um, to be honest, um, I partially feel that for myself and maybe because I feel that for myself, I feel it for their team too, that we could probably amp it up a little bit more knowing that there's probably some boundaries with like personal stuff going on and all that stuff. But I think there's room for us to to drive a bit more urgency and amp it up some more. I think people misunderstand those principles too, and they think it's some it's somehow conflicted with work life balance. But I actually think that it promotes a better work life balance because you end up like pouring more intensity into your work and spending maybe even less time doing it. Because oftentimes, like when my when I'm most stressed out, it's when I spend these days uh, kind of uncoordinated. When, when I've got like a, a bunch of meetings that I kind of don't know the agenda for, but I'm sitting in, like maybe they're not super important. When I've got 20 things on my to-do list and they're all marginally important and I'm like waiting to email somebody back for some reason, like I, you know, I could just fire off like a one minute response. And then it's like the days where I just crush through it in a couple hours and like I'm, I'm really sprinting at it and, and I'll often finish early, but it's like, I feel better those days and I actually have more time for the quote unquote life side of, of the equation. Honestly. For me, I've always struggled with having speed and standards go hand in hand because I often overthink when it comes to something having to be perfect. I mean, you all know I struggle with perfection. Um, And when I hear high quality, high standards, like that's kind of what I hear as a synonym, which it's not a synonym because perfection is literally impossible. But I've always struggled with that. And I've realized like there is such thing as just caring too much. You know, there's a point of diminishing returns when it comes to how much you think about a project or think about an email response or think about anything. And over time, no more thinking, no more waiting is going to make whatever you're trying to do better. And so for me, like my best days are when I just literally get shit done. And I, I kind of don't care. I mean, you all know it's pretty impossible for me not to care about something, but I'm trying to re- reach a point of apathy that I, you know, I don't cut corners. Or I don't do poor work or anything, but I don't know. There's a little bit of power to apathy, especially right now when you're just overwhelmed with everything going on in the world. Like you have to let go a little bit mentally. Like you can't care a hundred percent about a hundred percent of what's in your mind. And I think that's helped me with work, like moving faster and maintaining quality is not only letting go about of a little, letting go of a little of that, but also like trusting my gut, trusting that like that stuff, that quality, that those standards are going to come out in my work naturally because of how hard I work and how hard I try to be perfect. But it's always been a struggle for me to have, um, you know, amp it up, go fast, go hard, high standards. You know, it's for me, it's like, God, standards take time, but that's not always true. 
And it's like, what standards really matter and what standards can you actually like somewhat forget about, you know, letting the small fires burn is, is what I, I say. Um, cause sometimes like I know for instance, with experimentation or in sales, um, quantity has a quality all of its own. Like David, you were just talking about like baseline, maybe we get a 5% conversion rate if we're doing outbound sales. Well, that means we've got to send a lot of emails <laughs> and experiments. It's hard to predict what's going to win. So actually, if you can lower the cost of experimentation and put some urgency behind it, you might have a less high quality experiment each time, but like over time, because you're putting out more at bats or shots on goal, you're actually going to come up with a better, higher ROI program just through the sheer quantity of doing so, as opposed to sitting in a committee room, arguing about which font is actually the best one instead of just fucking testing it. Right. It's like, it's like writing output. Like I've gotten more comfortable with this, that nothing right is going to be perfect. Like I'm about to publish something and I don't feel great about it, but I'm like, this gets the message across and it's some great learnings and it'll be nice to get it published. Um, Is it going to be my best writing? Probably not. But if I tried to do my best writing on every piece, I would be spending like 50 hours per article. (laughs) No one ever ever read it. Yeah. It's interesting because like no one's going to know that like it's not your best work like it so i was in band in middle school and i was yeah. around all the, all the recitals i used to do i would i would i was on the first chair flute always had the solos and i'd always mess something up right and my mom's like you couldn't tell no one can tell and, and part of me was like but i i care but at the end of the day it's like i shouldn't care i did my best i showed up and the audience loved it and that's all that really matters and maybe in the back of your mind you're like that could have been better but like who cares like you got it out there and it got the message across. So I'm speaking about a strong grip on this and I don't have a strong grip on this. I just, I don't know. <laughs> no, that's good. Most people don't notice those things. Like David, the Will Smith book that you recommended me, there was that part where he talked about how he was so nervous about some of the fresh print stuff when he first started that he would memorize oh, yeah. everyone's lines yeah. and start like mouthing them, even though like these people were like world-class actors. And uh, he's like, you can still see it if you watch some of the early episodes, but I can't remember the name of the effect, whatever cognitive bias, some like focus effect or something like that. But you're watching the person who's speaking, so you don't even notice Will Smith mouthing the words to their parts while he's speaking. Yeah, pretty interesting. Um, wait, speaking on, I, I just spoke about writing. Alex, you had some things to say about how content SEO might change in a recession mm. environment. Well, I don't know necessarily the answers, so that's maybe where we open it up to a debate or conversation. Um, my hypothesis would be that similar things apply to content that they do on a business level and a marketing level, which is like, you're going to cut some budget. You're going to trim down. I think one thing is like, we've gotten used to paying like, you know, like top prices for almost all things in content, whether it's video podcast production, the writing, the editing, and, and maybe you start to question like, where are the biggest impact levers and how can I double down on those? And like, if you're going to double down on those, you have a finite budget. So like, what do you have to cut? And I don't think the answer is the same for every company. Um, that's that's where the kind of nuance lies. It's like whatever's working for your companies is probably what you should double down on. You know, if you were experimenting with some thought leadership and that's very expensive, and you're printing money from bottom funnel SEO stuff, I don't know. Maybe like double down on that. Maybe work on content optimization and figure out how much you can squeeze out of the low hanging fruit of the stuff you've already published. Yeah. But I don't know. What do y'all think? Well, I think it's more important than ever for content teams to understand how their efforts are impacting revenue. And I don't think every team has mapped that out. Um, I think there's some parts of it that may be assumed. Um, you know, maybe some some GA goals show 
some progress in that respect, but I don't know if everyone can, can tell, you know, their higher ups or their leaders, like, this is exactly what we're doing to drive revenue. This part might not be working, or maybe we're experimenting on this part, but X, Y, Z are how we make the business money. Um, so I think that that, that bridging that gap or drawing that line is probably an important step one that would then inform what Alex said, which is like, what to keep pushing, what to maybe shelve for the time being, maybe to what to do away with altogether and pick back up in a couple of years or depending on how the business business changes. Yeah. When I'm just going to think out loud, but if I just think about some of the clients and people I've spoken to is first, it starts with how the business views content. Like some businesses or VPs of marketing might be like, it's just a traffic growth thing, but not be mapping it down to how it generates leads and all that. And some might be doing that, which is probably good. And then others might also be thinking about content more holistically of, yeah, it brings in traffic, but we also use it for sales enablement. And we also use like the case studies a lot in our paid ads and our paid ads are performing well. So we can, we might decrease the budget for content, but we're not going to cut it out. So there's definitely a spectrum. And I think the way we pitch our services is, Hey, we're growing traffic that's relevant. So even though it doesn't immediately convert now, and there will be some traffic that does convert, like this is all going to be relevant to your buyer persona. So unless if you're completely pivoting your product or company, this should all be relevant even one, two, three years from now, ideally. And we're going to build out the reporting so you see what the impact is on leads, if that's their goal. And we're seeing some clients where like content is starting to hockey stick their product signups and trials started and all that, which is great. So hopefully they don't want to uh, decrease their budgets on that. But there might be some who maybe they went in expecting an immediate return and not seeing it and then deciding to cut the budget. So I'm just mapped out a bunch of different scenarios. My, what I would encourage like VPs of marketing right now is if all the other SaaS companies are laying off and cutting budgets, you should probably have to make a call on whether you also want to do that. Or while people are starting to get a bit more defensive, you go on the offense and like start building your moat. Um, I don't think there's, it's an easy decision, but some I have to get more comfortable with in a recession, taking continuing to take a long game approach versus short-term cuts. Mm-hmm. And there's no right answer. I, I, I so wouldn't know what to do. The, the heuristic of, you know, when, when people are greedy, you know, stay fearful and vice versa. How does that trickle down to apply to how content is a long game? You know, do you stay greedy investing in something that might not see returns for a year? It's going to be a long year. Well, or- so there's a bit of research on that. And it's a little frustrating because we're kind of talking about performance marketing versus brand marketing to an extent. If it's performance marketing, you can kind of tie that back pretty quickly. And I do think like, regardless of what you do, you should have a content growth model and be able to explain how content's contributing to the business. Like mm-hmm. that's just core level one. And then that allows you to like basically see, all right, if it's generating this business, like how, and like, how can I like double down on that? And what things can I cut out? That's core stuff. Um, but there, I read an article on Marketing Week. It was from Mark Ritson. Um, and he's, it's kind of frustrating because he actually doesn't link to the research. He just kind of summarizes it, which I, I found frustrating just editorially. But he talked about like the spending during, um, during a recession. And he actually says that contrary to what you would think, uh, performance budgets should be cut before brand budgets. 
and again, I didn't see the research, so I can't vet him on this and I'm a little skeptical, but his whole thing was, I have the quote actually, if your category cuts half its ad spend and you maintain your ad spend, for example, you get a massive boost in your ESOV, earn share of voice, something share of voice, <laughs> simply because everyone else is investing relatively less. And if multiple industries cut back their spending as they do in a recession, the cost of media often drops, ensuring your relative big ad spend is now stretching to even more value. So I think that's that's the fearful when others are greedy. Those are the benefits there. Or sorry, uh, greedy when others are fearful is that um, it costs less in content. It might cost less to hire writers. It might cost less to do the certain things, uh, especially paid budgets. Like you're going to get better CPMs and CPC. Um, and then he, he also talked about this. It's um, summarizing a century of data which is annoying because he didn't actually link to the century of data. The reasons brands should maintain their brand building, building budgets in a recession is not because of the recession itself, nor the behaviors of consumers. It's because your competitors lose their nerve and are vulnerable because of it. So if you can keep your head and your brand budget around while those around you are reducing theirs, you'll earn post-recessionary benefits. So he, he is directly speaking to the value of the long game there. Yeah. This kind of reminds me uh, of what David said about that, uh, poll that was taken at that event. Mm -hmm. Well, and at that event, like I would hypothesize that because they're listeners of the all in podcast, they're a little bit sharper. They know these things. And I would say that's probably not reflective of the general market. Yeah. So there's a lot of fearful people too. It sounds like the article you talking about, Alex is I looked it up. It looks like it's talking more about in this case, probably CPG, like consumer companies he's which, focused on consumers yeah sure. i can see where brand makes sense and i think how that translates to us and like b2b is in in b2b people are also be cutting spend so for us while other agencies might be cutting spend how do we continue getting in front of our prospective buyers regularly more than those other agencies and for our clients how do they continue getting that share of voice um while their competitors are kind of slowing it down a little bit. So it, I wouldn't even correlate it to spend, like though that's one channel, but like for us, we're going to be doubling down on events and we want everyone that would want to work with us or like be interested in learning about B2B demand gen to attend this event while other people might be decreasing budgets and all of that. Yeah. I mean, we only have two, we have two poles of our strategy in regards to marketing and sales. And one is very like, direct response, one-to-one sales outreach and referrals and whatnot, where we're essentially just trying to find the right person at the right company at the right time. And the other side is all brand building. Like that's what we do with the podcast, brand building and community. And that's what we do with the uh, office hours and the road to mastery and like the event series. Like, so I I think, I mean, we're already doubling down on both of those. That's the thing is when we're just trying to figure out like what the right allocation is among those activities, right? Because YouTube would have been brand building as well. It wasn't as propitious. So we decided to chop that. Um, whereas like the event series, we're like, all right, we're already seeing results from this. We know we can double down on this. This can get us closer to our target market. So let's invest more. Another thing that marketers should do, by the way, and this t- ties into the analytics side of things, is um, I don't think anybody can predict very accurately how consumer behavior changes, except that it will. So that's one thing that's interesting in that you kind of have to wear a couple different hats. We've already talked about how content marketers need to learn how to you know, tie back their efforts to results and maybe build some sort of a content growth model or at least do some attribution to figure that out. That's, that's skill set number one. But number two is learning how to do that customer research, customer insights, voice of customer research 
to figure out like how, how are your customers feeling? Are they fearful? Are they increasing their budgets? Are they decreasing their budgets? That's especially true in SaaS and B2B. Um, and I think a lot of companies are already doing that, thankfully. But um, a, lot, a lot of that should be housed in the content program itself. Because I know a lot of the times it's housed in product or potentially a conversion rate optimization in UX. But how you write the content should potentially shift depending on how, how your buyers are speaking about mm-hmm. their feelings at the moment. Not assuming where your, your readers are when they do stumble upon your content. There's a lot of assumptions when it comes to writing for your reader, writing for your audience. And a lot of it is like, oh, you're looking for this or, oh, here's your struggles or, oh, like here's where you're at mentally. And that's just fundamentally changing. Yeah. I mean, we talked about the value of doubling down, but there's also the the fact that maybe what worked before isn't going to work in the immediate period or in the future. So I think it's um, it's been said that uh, humankind's greatest advantage for survival is their adaptability. And I think that's probably the number one thing in any times like there, just because we're in a recession or in a recession, I don't even know if we're in a recession. I think we are, but I don't know. Um, but it's, it's really demarcated by like the increased level of uncertainty um, and, and also economic and financial factors, such as less availability of fundraising and, you know, maybe like less purchasing power for inflation for consumers. But I think it's just a greater level of uncertainty but that doesn't mean there's no uncertainty in good times. Like, so there's always some level of uncertainty and maintaining agility and adaptability during any time is, is usually what causes people yeah. to survive or thrive. Yeah. I, I think there was a article from Morgan Housel from uh, the collaborative fund about that. He's like, when things are going really well, people have lower sense of uncertainty. When things are going bad, they have a higher sense of uncertainty. But in reality, uncertainty is always there. It's just your perception of it. So maybe the fact that we tend to be quite paranoid people, naturally, we were always like, was, wasn't this, didn't you expect this? <laughs> so we were, we were a bit more mentally prepared for this. Only the paranoid survive, they say. That's right. Andy Grove. All right. Well, I think that's the episode. Talked about how we're feeling about the recession, what we're doing for the team, what we're doing for the business, what other businesses maybe should do, maybe not advice, but how, how we would think about it and uh, stay paranoid. Wait, 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 wait. Sorry. Um, I know you just did a beautiful ending there, but how are you, like, what are you reading and listening to? Like, have you researched other people, like what they're saying right now? Ross Simmons put out a good newsletter on it. Um, Amanda Natividad put something out on it. Like I'm, I'm finding and uh, Kieran and Kit on the marketing uh, against the grand podcast did uh, did an episode on it. But everybody gives different advice depending on like their bias and vantage point. So I'm trying to parse it all and figure out like Wait, what have you been hearing? I haven't, I haven't paid my. I just listened to it all in pod. Like I'm, I'm not. I'm honestly Kip not. Said you have to like more. care about your customers or something like that. Um, which yeah, that's helpful. Um, and then I think Amanda yeah. talked about <laughs> yeah, as if you shouldn't care about your customers any other time. Times are good. Don't give a shit. I mean, it's only when yeah, so I always see the advice like, oh, here's the number one bulletproof hack to marketing. Talk to your customers. It's like awesome. Thank, thanks. Five thousand likes. <laughs> Preach. 
it's so ridiculous. Um, Amanda talked about like diversifying outside of expensive channels, which I think hers was pretty good. And she had talked about how Spark Toro had already suited themselves well to do that. And economically speaking, they're in a good position. And Ross, I think, had talked mostly about mindset. He talked about, you know, if you're an employee, take like a an extreme ownership approach, align yourself to the highest impact ROI generating projects, which is what we've talked about. And then as a business, he talked about like not necessarily cutting. He's coming from a marketing agency perspective as we are. So, um, you know, I, I try, to try, try to take that into account. Um, not necessarily because I think the advice to keep spending is good, but like I get a little skeptical when it when people say where to spend, because I don't necessarily know if it is on content or if it is unpaid. Like, I think that's actually a highly context dependent thing for each company. But he did mention like, you know, if you have the ability to keep spending on like your highest ROI marketing activities right now, don't stop. Like this is the best time to do it. So that's what I've heard from from the few sources that I've seen talk about it. I don't know. I, I think like all the advice aside, like we kind of know the principles. And I think it's it's one of those things David and I have, have mentioned before. It's like kind of the question, like, so what? And the answer is almost always just work harder. <laughs> yeah. It's like just just work harder. Like you'll, you'll be good. Answer. Work harder, work smarter. Don't burn crazy cash. Don't sell. Stay paranoid. Bam. Learned anything cool. today? It's that. 